Welcome back to another episode of Sociable Socialism. I'm Joe Loudguy. Today we are going to be covering the post-debate analysis. I mean, hooray. I'm so glad I delayed the episode until after the debate to talk about it. Let me tell you, I am thrilled. And we'll also be covering the best hits of John Bolton. Now, you might be thinking I'm talking about Michael Bolton, but I'm not. Stay tuned. So today is September 13th. It is the day after the third Democratic debate, and uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, those debates, this debate, but all of the debates, have been horrendous. But this previous debate was the worst. And anybody who watched it with me, if you've seen all of them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everything that I've complained about in the past couple debates was not only in this one, but it actually went even farther to such an extent that Bernie Sanders actually had the least amount of talk time right up there with Andrew Yang for the least called upon by the moderators. And this must be their new strategy since they know they can't combat his ideas and their popularity. They're just not going to give him a chance to speak. It's like the same strategy they've, they had when he ran against Hillary, I guess, is to pretend he doesn't exist. Only this time it's more egregious since he's basically in a three-way tie between him, Liz Warren, and Joe Biden. So I have just spent the last 40 minutes prepping for this episode. And how did I do that? I've gone through and collected all of the articles the New York Times and the Washington Post have written in the last 16 or 18 hours uh, about Joe Biden. And... Uh, it's hideous, but you're welcome that I took the time to find them and like them so that through my Twitter feed, I can filter them and uh, check on them and relay them to you. So you can see the degree of praise that the Post and the New York Times are heaping on Joe Biden. If you didn't watch the debates, you might be thinking, well, he's the front runner. Of course they'd praise him. If you did watch the debates, you'll be very confused because Joe Biden was a rambling, incoherent mess of a candidate that failed to articulate a single moment of the debate. Not even a simple question he could get through without finding himself in a racial faux pas or forgetting uh, that Bernie Sanders is not actually the president yet or mentioning that kids are listening to record players even though Nobody listens to record players. I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on and on. Anybody who watched that walked away feeling like Joe Biden is barely hanging in there. Like The degree of incoherence that he has is so stark and so common now. This is from someone who doesn't agree with his ideology. I'm being upfront with you, the listener. I do not agree with Joe Biden's ideology, even were he to be a coherent human being. It's not something I'm for. He has different politics from me. But as an objective observer, I can still tell when someone is not putting a sentence together correctly. And Joe Biden was that guy last night. He was barely holding it together. And the press has decided that none of that matters. 
We're just going to move forward as if Joe Biden didn't flop and tell everyone that he did great. And why are they going to do this? They're going to do this because if they admit that Joe Biden is not all there, if they allow themselves to admit that Joe Biden, I don't, I don't like to put words in the mouth of doctors. I don't like to pretend. I mean, think back to Hillary Clinton. People were like claiming she was going through early Parkinson's. I mean, it's, it's that kind of stuff that I like to avoid. Uh, but Biden is actually missing a step. I, I, I don't know how you can deny it. And I'll be playing some clips from the debate for you so you can hear it for yourself. And you make the judgment because they're calling this ageism in the press. That's the one thing that I've noticed as an underlying theme is that they are trying to make this all as if it came solely from Julian Castro and as if it was related to his age and not the fact that he's missing a step. Biden is not all there. And the reason why they cannot admit that he is not there is that if they admit that he is falling behind, they are effectively writing him off as no longer the front runner. And they have to keep him as the front runner because none of the other corporate candidates, no matter how hard they try to push them, and they really tried last night to push Klobuchar, uh, to push Beto O'Rourke, to push Buttigieg, to push Kamala, they really tried. And some of these articles that I have lined up here really try to paint the picture that they did better than you would think. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is all those candidates are polling between 5 to 0%. And the reason for that is because nobody is interested in their non-existent ideas. Their, their terrible neoliberal ideology is not something that the American people want to hear. People are not interested in being told that they're going to get some kind of tax credit for going to college if they go to college to become a teacher. You know, people are not interested in means-tested health care, in means-tested debt forgiveness. People are interested in knowing that their debt and their health care are going to be taken care of. And that is only being parroted by a few candidates. Bernie Sanders obviously being the gold standard on that topic. A lot of people would bemoan me if I didn't also give credit to Liz Warren, who, you know, I mean, I don't agree with her policies. I don't think they're sufficient enough. But at the very least, acknowledges that these problems are real and that they aren't make-believe. So, you know, I'll give credit where credit is due. But you wouldn't know that from reading the Washington Post, which the Washington Post, it seems to me that after Bernie Sanders called them out, the Washington Post basically has abandoned all restraint. They have decided that if they're going to be the paper known for bashing Bernie and praising corporatists, that they might as well just full-throated do it, you know? They, they don't really seem like they're playing hide the ball anymore, which I kind of appreciate, but they're still super smug about being called on it. So I'm going to call them on it right now. You guys are corporate tools. You're, you're a corporate rag that toes the line for the Democratic establishment because the Democratic establishment toes the line for you. Plain and simple. Uh, the Jeff Bezos oligarch class that gets nothing but tax breaks from our Congress and Senate uh, is very happy under both Republican and Democratic 
administrations, provided they're not like a Bernie Sanders, I'll raise the taxes on the rich kind of administration. They do not like those people. So uh, as far as they're concerned, if Joe Biden's the candidate, they win. If Donald Trump is the candidate, they win. The only way they lose is Bernie Sanders becomes the candidate. So, of course, at this point, they're just abandoning all restraint. The New York Times is not much better. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to uh, just start with the New York Times because there were fewer of them. Uh, number one, age will be the weapon that Joe Biden's opponents will use because it's basically all they have. Writes uh, Timothy Egan, a New York Times columnist and author. So right here, right out the gate is what I was talking about. Uh, they're mentioning that Joe Biden straight up said that Bernie Sanders was the president, which he said of Cory Booker at a previous debate. At one point, his dentures fell out. And at another point, he proceeded to, when talking about uh, his record on reparations, when asked a question about reparations, uh, his response was to deflect over to, I guess, universal pre-K is the best way to touch on it. You know what? I'll just play the clip for you. We have one school psychologist for every 1,500 kids in America today. It's crazy. The teachers are, and I'm married to a teacher. My deceased wife is a teacher. They have every problem coming to them. We have to make sure that every single child does, in fact, have three, four, and five-year-olds go to school. School, not daycare, school. We bring social workers into homes of parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night, the, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, or a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. So I hope that made sense to you because it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me and I just spent pff, more time than I would like to admit trying to piece that together so y'all would be able to hear it and uh, it still is incomparable to garbage and globally gook. That was Joe Biden on stage talking to all of us about how he intended to... It was like it started out. It started out where he was explaining how his views on race had changed because the moderator had asked him a direct uh, quote from him about how he said that he felt responsible for the actions of today, not the actions of 300 years ago. And I'm being very polite by not using his actual quote because his actual quote is a disgusting Republican uh, talking point. Uh, but point is, he was saying that I feel responsible for the sins we're doing today in terms of like the civil rights uh, movement, and uh, I don't feel responsible to do reparations because that was the sins of 300 years ago. That was his quote. And so he spins that into what you just heard, which is not a policy prescription, not really much of anything other than a guy talking at first about kids needing to be better, better educated, then universal pre-K, even though he doesn't have a universal pre-K plan, then talking about how kids hear fewer words, and that is certainly something that can impact uh, a child's development, but I, it, 
to then jump to televisions, record players, and phones and just segue on past it, that is not a good answer. Point is, it's not a good answer, but the Washington Post and the New York Times would like you to believe differently. And I know that if you watch the debates, none of this will come as a surprise to you. But the reason why we have to point this out is because these articles were not written for those of us that watch the debates. The New York Times and the Washington Post have pretty much given up on those of us that actually pay attention to politics because they know that we're not falling for their shit. They are blasting out over the airwaves what they want to be the truth for those of us that don't pay attention to the debates. Because those of us that don't pay attention to the debates that still view the New York Times and the Washington Post as legitimate sources of news, they are hoping that you will not yourself go and watch what happened on the debate stage so they can tell you how to think about it. They can tell you that, yeah, Biden did great. Please don't look at the clips online. They're deeply embarrassing, and they completely show us to be the lying hacks that we are. But we're counting on you to not do that. That's basically the bet that they're hedging here, and it's actually a pretty smart bet. Because I imagine most people did not watch the debate because they scheduled the debate during a football game. That's not accidental. The fact that it starts at 8 and the game starts at 8.30 is entirely by design. So without further ado, uh, the New York Times, uh, again, age will be the weapon that Joe Biden's opponents will use because it's basically all they have. Uh, that's number one. I'm for Barack, Biden says, uh, about health care. He notes Warren says she was with Bernie uh, from our live analysis. That is number two. Joe Biden was asked about race and school segregation. His answer included giving teachers a raise and playing a record player at night so children could hear more words. That's number three. Now, let's be clear. You just heard the clip that that, that that is mentioning. You heard the clip. Did the clip sound as coherent as what this New York Times article phrases it to be? Did it phrase it as Joe Biden was giving an answer on how to combat school segregation by giving teachers a raise and playing a record at night? No. What he said was school psychologists, most schools, they don't, they don't have enough. And then, you know, and most kids, and then they don't hear the television, record players. Fun. That's what he actually said was just incomparable glibly glop. And the New York Times is trying to phrase that as if it's a policy prescription. But again, you would know that now because you heard the clip. You wouldn't know that if you didn't watch the debate. If Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren are headed for a showdown, neither of them appear to be in a hurry to get there. Article number four from the New York Times. Uh, they have staked out diverging political paths, but have mostly refrained from attacking each other. Now a more combative phase of the race. That's from the same article. It's just a quick quote, a quote from it to explain why they're saying Biden and Warren didn't go after each other, which again, if you saw the debate, you would see is completely counterfactual as they call each other out. In fact, I even quoted earlier from another New York Times article where Biden says, I'm for Barack when he's talking about healthcare, and then he turns to Warren and says, she was with Bernie. Like, I know you're with Bernie. It's like, come on. They clearly were sniping at each other. Uh, Washington Post now. Uh, analysis. Biden delivers the debate performance he needed despite occasional missteps. This article, by the way, was ratioed uh, two to one. Uh, 
Moving on, the Washington Post. Having the front runners together for the debate made the Democratic field look better. And look at tonight's winners and losers, with the winners being Klobuchar, Kamala, and Biden. So there you go. I saved you a click on that article. Klobuchar is a non-existent one percenter. Uh, Kamala is a non-existent four to five percenter. So neither of them are going to be the nominee. Uh, Democrats clash over health care and more in debates that started with calls for unity. That is article from the Washington Post number three. Uh, the Washington Post analysis. For most, of the, for most of the night, it was Biden's time to shine. That's article number four. Uh, no, no, article number five. Julian Castro questioned Joe Biden's acuity, but did Castro get it right? Yes, he did. At a certain point in the debate, Castro goes, you literally forgot what you said 10 minutes ago. You just forgot it. And everybody said, that was way too mean, Castro. It was also really accurate. Joe Biden did forget what he literally said. Oh, number six. Moderates stood out in the third. <laughs> moderates stood out in the third debate. Too bad it won't make much of a difference. That's the Washington Post again saying that the strength of the Democrats' moderate wing was the biggest takeaway from the debate. Again, remember what I said at the beginning. Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang were called on less than anyone else. I'm not even a Yang fan. I don't like Yang. He's a libertarian. Uh, he's just a libertarian. That's all he is. He's just a libertarian running in the Democratic Party. And he and Bernie were called on the least. And they're trying to spin it as if the moderates shine. Well, of course they're going to shine when you ask only them debate questions. <sighs> Number seven, Biden gave the debate performance he needed with a few missteps. Read the post-analysis of last night's Democratic face-off. Now, you might think I read this one earlier. I didn't. That is a separate article. Uh, Fact-checking the third Democratic presidential debate. Here's a round of debate claims from the third Democratic presidential debate. And the fact-check, uh, as we pull it up, takes a look at... Fact-checking Bernie Sanders' claims on health care. And it does nothing to review Joe Biden's false claims that it would rob the American people of their, uh, or that it would take away health care from more people than it would give, which is factually inaccurate. That was Joe Biden's take. And he's now putting this on his actual Twitter feed. He's actually putting that up there as if it's something to be proud of, even though it's a health care talking point. Uh, moving down. Julian Castro and Cory Booker's risky attacks on Joe Biden's sharpness. Again, they were attacks that were well-earned. Joe Biden created that problem. Washington Post again. Number eight, healthcare is the central divide in the Democratic Party, where they talk about how Joe Biden, right here at the end, Joe Biden's plan would cost less than Bernie Sanders, though it would leave $10 million off of health insurance. Uh, analysis. Castro's kamikaze mission makes Biden more sympathetic and six other debate takeaways. Oh, God damn. Uh, we're at either nine or ten at this point. Analysis. What Biden was talking about when he was talking about record players, race, and education. So this is a an article trying to explain away that whole article. Analysis. What Biden was talking about when he was talking about uh, record players, race, and education is designed to explain Joe Biden's terrible answer for him. 
The Washington Post is literally trying to clarify for you what Joe Biden was incapable of, of clarifying himself. This is his plan. He's the one running for president. And you're not expecting him to speak his policies clearly? Are you crazy? Oh, number 10, analysis. Which candidates attacked the most during the third Democratic debate? Julian Castro waged 13 attacks. Uh, Biden was on the defensive. Bernie also was attacking heavily. I mean, again, completely unfactual. Opinion. Biden's age is a real issue that doesn't make it easy to talk about. Voters were even more skeptical of older candidates than LGBT candidates. I mean, it's a conversation completely devoid of what, why his age is an issue. His age is not the issue, by the way. His age isn't an issue. His mind is the issue. No one gives a crap whether you're 70, 90, or 120. People only want to know that you're going to be there when they elect you for their entire term, and they want to know that you have the mental acuity to do the job. That's the only thing people give a damn about. Oh, number 11 or 12, perspective. Biden's debate was either presidential or disqualifying. Depends on your media source. It was disqualifying. It was disqualifying. The former vice president rambled, sometimes nonsensically, or worse, but many proclaimed his big win. That was in the, that article, by the way. Number 12 or 13, the three big winners of the Houston debate. Again, Klobuchar, Kamala, and Biden. Opinion. Be patient, Democrats. It's not time to narrow the field yet. An attempt to make it seem like having 10 people on that stage, most of whom are polling below 5%, is useful. Uh, number 14. As Joe Biden proves a durable candidate, opponents delicately raise his age. No one raised his age. No one raised his age. It was entirely his mental acuity that got brought up. That was 14 articles I went through. At least 14 articles about Joe Biden, none of which were negative and none of which addressed the fact that his mental acuity is the problem, not his age. The Washington Post, bar none, is doing its damnedest to try to launder Joe Biden's failing mind as if it isn't what it is. They, and again, they're counting on you to not see the debate for yourself, to not hear his rambling sentences for himself, for yourself. And I'm here to tell you that you should watch the debate. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to tell you that when I heard it, it stunned me into ex uh, an unbelievable stupor. It, it, it goes without saying that the man needs help. It goes without saying, frankly, that letting him go up there and embarrass himself like this is... I would go so far as to call it elder abuse. And I have called it elder abuse on Twitter, but I... I in my official capacity now as a podcast host, I'm saying that this is actually painful to watch and this man should not be running for president. Someone should be helping get this man uh, a Sudoku puzzle to help like sharpen his mind. He should be doing crosswords. He And I'm not saying this because that's what old people do. I'm saying that old people do that stuff because it helps put their mind in like a work mode so that it sharpens it. That is what this individual needs to be doing. Not doing all-nighters on buses, not rehearsing speeches and standing up on a stage for hours at a time. And he needs real professional medical help because he is in some kind of mental decline. It's painful to watch. And if it wasn't so dangerous for the country, it would be sad. And it would be kind of uncouth for me to make fun of it. But 
this is something that needs to be addressed. And the fact that the Post is going to stand out here and try to tell you, uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> don't, don't believe your lying eyes. Trust me. I'm telling you Joe Biden's the front runner and everyone who attacked him is a big old meanie. No. No, 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 no. That's absurd. And I didn't even get into the articles, by the way, leading up to the debate, which were literally just like, hey, it's Biden versus Warren and literally nobody else. They are so determined not to mention Bernie at this point that you must yourself be seeing it. You must yourself be uh, going through Twitter and seeing these comical cutout images that just don't have Bernie in them while they'll say, Biden's in first, Warren's clawing her way to third, and others are still there. You know, it's it's beyond parody. It's something that SNL would have done, and we would have all rolled our eyes because it was too cheesy, but it's, like, real. So, of course, in the wake of this, I, I don't have a, a prescription as I started it. I, I, I pretty much said that they've dropped the mask. At this point, they're just trying to launder... Biden as the best option because they have seen Klobuchar, Kamala, Pete Buttigieg, and Beto O'Rourke fail to gain steam because nobody is interested in their non-policy descriptions. Nobody is interested or excited by them standing up and waving their arms in the air. What people are looking for is real systemic change, a breakup of institutionalized capital as what I have uh, uh, advocated for. Something that is a little more substantial than Amy Klobuchar's tax credits. You know, it, nobody wants that. Nobody's excited by it. And the policy prescription is insufficient to solve the problems that we find ourselves in. And realizing this, the Post and the New York Times and other major establishment news is desperate to keep Biden afloat. Because if they let Biden fall, if they let him sink, there's no one to challenge Bernie. There's no one to challenge Warren. And they may like Warren more than Bernie, but they still would rather have a Klobuchar or a Kamala than Warren. They do not want someone who even if they don't mean it, which is my concern with Warren, is that she's a very calculated uh, individual who always waits to see the way the wind is blowing before she'll throw her weight behind a policy. And that's been my concern of her for years. Uh, they don't want someone, even like Warren, who's willing to talk the rhetoric. Like the rhetoric to them is disqualifying of populism. The rhetoric of mentioning how three people own more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans. They do not want that said. They don't want to hear it because that speaks to the real underlying problems in our society. That speaks to the uh, inequality between the haves and the have-nots and the degree of severity that we're at. And if you start getting to that, people ask for taxes to be raised on the wealthy. But of course, if taxes are raised on the wealthy, well, then Jeff Bezos is not getting his return on investment from the Post. So it stands to reason the Post is going to run 14 articles the next day all about how great Biden is. So that is why you're seeing a million billion articles talking about how great Biden is. It is because they're scared. And I said this on Twitter. This is fear. This kind of a reaction is paralleled by the 16 articles that the Post ran over 16 hours back in 2016 uh, to, and I know that sounds like I just repeated the number 16 three times. It Literally, that's how it worked. 
uh, of them attacking Bernie Sanders. The Post did not want Bernie to gain steam against Hillary, just like they don't want Bernie to gain steam against Biden. But they know that they can't just attack Bernie all the time because attacking him is not enough. They can't depress the vote any more than they already have. So they have to do articles praising Biden because he looked bad. And if they don't set a narrative that last night was a win for him, and they're failing to do it because uh, Ananji Ardana, shout out to him, is going on MSNBC to talk about how much of a failure it was. I think he's doing that tomorrow, so tune in. It's either tomorrow or Monday. It's sometime coming up soon, and Ananji Ardana is going to be on MSNBC to point out how racist and failing Joe Biden was in that whole uh, debacle of a debate. Um Ananji Ardanis, if you don't know him, is an MSNBC contributor and also a best-selling author uh, of Winner... I think the, the title of the book was Winner Take All, and it's about how Silicon Valley basically screwed all of us over. But he, he is a rare exception on MSNBC of allowing an actual lefty to talk, and he's going to go on there and lay out the, the, the ground of why that was a failure on Joe Biden's part, and I can't wait to see it, because the mainstream media is desperate to pretend like it wasn't the failure that it was. And only time will tell if that narrative they're spinning will stick. I don't actually think it will. I, I think that the clips are going to get out there, whether they want it to or not. People are going to be clipping like what I just did for you, how embarrassing Joe Biden was. Uh, so without further ado, let's move on to John Bolton, who you may know already lost his job this week. woo my voice broke right there. Thank God John Bolton is gone. He is one of the most dangerous human beings on the planet. If you don't know who John Bolton is, he is most distinguished by his beady little eyes and deep walrus mustache. He is a neocon and one of the primary architects of the Iraq War. He was by far one of the most dangerous people in the Trump administration because of his saber-rattling, not just with Venezuela, not just with North Korea, but also with Iran and with uh, Syria. The man loves war. There has never been a war that John Bolton didn't want to start. He is the personification of neocon. The very people that we like despised in the Bush administration era, the uh, the the Donald Rumsfelds, the uh, Condoleezza Rices, the Dick Cheneys, all of them walk hand in hand and frankly fall behind John Bolton for how absolutely grotesque he is. He was the worst of the worst. From his Wikipedia page, Bolton is a foreign policy hawk and is an advocate for regime change in Iran, Syria, Libya, Venezuela, Cuba, Yemen, and North Korea. That's from Wikipedia. That is literally like, that isn't something that was written out by like the Jacobin in a lefty newspaper. That's just how it is. He's made no uh, qualms of admitting to what his, his regime uh, policy is. He's also repeatedly called for the termination of the Iran nuclear deal. He was an advocate of the Iraq war and continues to support the decision to invade Iraq. He has continuously supported military action and regime change in Syria, Libya, and Iran. A Republican, his political views have been described as American nationalist, conservative, and neoconservative. Bolton rejects the last term, uh, even though it's probably the most accurate for describing what he is. He is... One of the most extreme and disgusting human beings on the planet. And this is going to be an episode where we uh, 
just sort of celebrate his dismissal and go down his political position, starting with unilateralism and Americanism. Uh, Americanism is Bolton's core belief, according to the New York Times. Quote, Long before Mr. Trump popularized his American First slogan, Mr. Bolton termed himself an Americanist who prioritized a cold-eyed view of national interests and sovereignty over what they both saw as a starry-eyed fixation on democracy promotion and human rights. They shared a deep skepticism of globalism and multilateralism, a commonality that empowered Mr. Bolton to use his time in the White House to orchestrate the withdrawal of the United States from arms control treaties and other international agreements. So what that quote is getting at there is that John Bolton does not believe in diplomacy and he does not believe the United States should work with other countries to de-escalate conflicts. Rather, John Bolton believes we need to be in more conflicts. We're the best and every like we're the shit and everybody else has to smell it is John Bolton's philosophy. We have no reason to be uh, disarming ourselves. We have no reason to be in treaties that, that roll back our arms. What we need to do is have our weapons everywhere. Going on further, Bolton is skeptical of international organizations and international law, believing them to endanger American sovereignty and does not believe they have legitimate authority under the U.S. Constitution. So again, this is the guy, by the way, there was a clip of him from, I want to say almost over a year ago, 2018, maybe even 2017, of him talking about uh, the, the international courts uh, saying that we, like, they, they were, like, sanctioning us or saying something to the effect of how uh, our decision to uh, escalate and, uh, uh, or to allow the Israelis to pro- proclaim Jerusalem was, in fact, the capital was uh, a negative. It, it was something insane. Hold on, let me pull up that clip because that in and of itself is phenomenal. November of 2017, the ICC prosecutor requested authorization to investigate alleged war crimes committed by U.S. service members and intelligence professionals during the war in Afghanistan, an investigation neither Afghanistan nor any other state party to the Rome Statute requested. Literally any day now, the ICC may announce the start of a formal investigation against these American patriots who voluntarily signed on to go into harm's way to protect our nation, our homes, and our families in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. The ICC prosecutor has requested to investigate these Americans for alleged detainee abuse, and perhaps more, an utterly unfounded, unjustifiable investigation. Today, on the eve of September the 11th, I want to deliver a clear and unambiguous message on behalf of the President of the United States. The United States will use any means necessary to protect our citizens and those of our allies from unjust prosecution by this illegitimate court. We will not cooperate with the ICC. We will provide no assistance to the ICC and we certainly will not join the ICC. We will let the ICC die on its own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. 
So before I looked up that clip, I was struggling to remember where that was from. That was, believe it or not, and again, I didn't plan this, that was from last year, September 11th, on 2018, uh, or, well, September 11th, 2018, uh, where John Bolton is talking about the International Criminal Court and how the International Criminal Court wanted to prosecute uh, members of our armed services for war crimes they committed in Afghanistan and him basically telling the International Criminal Court to go fuck itself. Uh, that is the kind of man that John Bolton is really highlighting what I was getting at where he does not believe in internationalism. He doesn't believe foreign countries have any say over our constitution. He doesn't really even believe our constitution has say over our constitution. He believes we can pretty much do whatever we want and might makes right. Uh, and uh, following up with what we were talking about, uh, Bolton is a critic of the European Union, and his book, Surrender, is not an option. You can't make this up. He criticized the EU for pursuing the endless process of diplomatic mastication rather than satisfactorily solving problems, and he labeled the organization's di diplomats as EU-roids. He has also criticized the EU for advancing what he considers liberal policies. Bolton campaigned in Ireland against further EU integration in 2008, and he criticized the Treaty of Lisbon for expanding EU powers. In 2016, Bolton praised the UK's referendum vote to leave the EU, and Axios reported in January 2019 that Bolton continued to advocate for a hard Brexit as National Security Advisor, the job he just lost. In a March 2019 interview with Sky News, Bolton criticized the UK political class for not implementing the Brexit vote. The man is a hard Brexiteer. If you know anything about Brexit, it is a pending economic collapse as the EU uh, is pretty much fed up uh, with Brexit being held off uh, by these individuals in the UK that want to have an actual, like, a, a debate about leaving the EU but on terms that best suit... <laughs> Uh, the United Kingdom workers, and then you have uh, people like uh, Boris Johnson who just want to pull out without a deal. And I, to say that it would be disastrous to pull out of the EU without a deal is an understatement because uh, there are people in England uh, who, in the United Kingdom, uh, who rely on cheap goods that they get from the EU. Uh, to survive, to live on. The cost of food will go up to such an extent that some people will no longer be able to afford it if they leave the EU without a deal in place. Jeremy Corbyn is fighting right now to prevent uh, a no-deal Brexit because of this exact catastrophe waiting to happen that John Bolton is in favor of, that he wants to see happen, because he does not like how the EU views foreign policy. He does not like working together with other nations. Uh, going into Libya, Bolton opposed the deal that George W. Bush made with then-Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi to eliminate the country's weapons of mass destruction program, which they did get rid of after we requested it, and we destroyed them anyway. He was in a key role during initial negotiations, but his role became limited over time. According to a 2005 study, Bolton was intentionally kept out of the loop so that a final agreement could be reached. This is a guy that you literally cannot let debate or talk because he will sabotage it. He was trying to sabotage our talks with North Korea. That was one of the things that he was, was known for doing, was trying to sabotage our talks with... with, with 
Donald Trump's talks with North Korea, one of the few good things Donald Trump ever attempted to do was try to make peace with North Korea. Now, he fumbled it because he's an idiot. But that doesn't mean that the attempt is bad. And he was like, no, I don't want us to make peace with North Korea. I believe in regime change. Let's go overthrow him like we did in Libya. He literally said, let's do the Libya model. And Bolton reportedly was unaware of the December 19th WMD agreement until very very shortly before his public announcement. This is back to Libya. And after initially being given a lead role in implementing it, he pushed so hard to backtrack from the agreement that the British convinced the Bush administration to restrict his involvement in the Libya matter. Bolton supported the NATO-led military intervention in Libya that toppled the regime of Muammar Gaddafi after he gave up his weapons of mass destruction. After he gave them up. Iraq. Bolton is regarded to be an architect of the Iraq War. In 1998, he was a signator, he was a signator, I'm not going to try to mention that word. He was part of a letter that was sent to President Bill Clinton, urging him to remove Saddam Hussein from power using U.S. diplomatic, political, and military power. He supported the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq that toppled the regime of Saddam Hussein, I hope you're noticing a pattern here, and continue to stand by his support of the invasion by 2018. In 2007, Bolton said that the only mistake the United States did with regards to Iraq was to not leave earlier after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and tell the Iraqis, here's a copy of the Federalist Papers, good luck. Literally, that's a quote. Literally, that's a quote. Quote, unquote, here's a copy of the Federalist Papers, good luck. That's his policy prescription. Show up, overthrow, let chaos reign. Our companies come in, ravage the natural resources of the country, and then we peace the fuck out. That is who Bolton is. Moving on to Israel. Bolton is known for his strong support of Israel. Bolton opposes the two-state solution of creating an independent Palestinian state alongside the existing state of Israel. Bolton supported moving the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem in accordance with the Jerusalem Embassy Act. And he testified in front of Congress in 2017 on the matter. In 2010, Bolton co-founded the Friends of Israel Initiative with 12 other international figures. North Korea and Iran. Touched on some of these already. Bolton has advocated for the preemptive strikes against North Korea and Iran. In March 2018, he suggested that South Korea take North Korea and terminate the North Korean regime as the only diplomatic option. Ah, said that the war between the two countries is their problem and not the U.S.'s problem. A war between the two countries would kill millions of people. Let's be clear about that. Millions of South Korean citizens and North Korean citizens would die in firestorms of rockets as they fight. You don't need weapons of mass destruction to cause mass destruction. Let's be clear, you don't need to use chemical weapons or biological weapons or nuclear weapons to cause mass destruction. You can do it with a Tomahawk missile. In 2008, Bolton said the idea here is not to have much larger hostilities, but to stop the Iranians from engaging in the hostilities that they are already doing against us inside Iraq. And they're doing much the same by aiding the Taliban in Afghanistan. So this is not provocative or preemptive. This is entirely responsive on our part. Not true. No, that's true. Uh, the Iranians do not support the Taliban. That's simply made up gibbly gob. It's not true. In 2018, Bolton stated Russia, China, Syria, Iran, North Korea. These are regimes that make agreements and lie about them. A national security policy that is based on the faith that regimes like that will honor their commitments is doomed to failure. Again, these are quotes, man. He also said that, quote, our goal should be regime change in Iran, unquote. 
The New Yorker described the people who have worked with Bolton as saying, quote, he is focused less on North Korea than on Iran, unquote. H.R. McMaster has reportedly told Dexter Fikens that Bolton have had, quote, the anal focus on Iran for 20 years, unquote. I I guess that's an exact quote. Speaking to a meeting of Iranian exile group Mujahideen-e-Khalik, in March 2018, Bolton stated that the Trump administration should follow the goal of regime change in Iran and that, quote, before 2019, we here, dot, 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 will celebrate in Iran. I can't even believe he said that. That's stunning. That's absolutely stunning. Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, recount, uh, oh, Ayatollah Khamenei, yeah, I'm familiar with that, recounted the prediction by describing the U.S. official making the prediction as a first-class idiot without naming anyone. <laughs> he is, most certainly. People's Mujahideen of Iran. Uh, prior to being delisted by the U.S. as a foreign terrorist organization in 2012, Bolton spoke in favor of the People's Mujahideen of Iran, also known as the Mujahideen Khalik or Mek, in at least one case being paid to do so. Mech has a long anti-American history. According to the State Department, the Mech follows a philosophy that mixes Marxism and Islam. I don't know if I believe that, but there you go. On January 25th, 2011, Bolton drew a standing ovation at a Mech conference in Brussels for his support of the Mech, giving a speech in which he backed Mech's legitimacy and the notion of removing it from the list of terrorist organizations. According to his financial disclosures, he was given $40,000 for his 2016 speech to the Mech. I don't particularly care about that. Moving on to Russia. In 2013, after NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, an American hero, I might add, had been granted asylum in Russia, Bolton said, I think in order to focus Putin's thinking, we need to do things that cause him pain as well. And while I know that not having a chance to have a bilateral meeting with his buddy Barack Obama will cause Putin to lose sleep, it's not damaging to Russian interests. That's a quote. That's a full quote from him. Russian Senator Alexei Pushkov, former chairman of the State Duma Committee on International Affairs, said after Bolton's appointment, Bolton, along with Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, was an ardent supporter of the war in Iraq, a supporter of jihadists for the sake of overthrowing Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, a great specialist in interventions and aggression, and an adept at the use of force. And again, please note that middle part there, because you might not have noticed it. He was a supporter of jihadists for the sake of overthrowing Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. We support ISIS and al-Qaeda sympathetic groups in Syria to help defeat Assad who is a secular ruler, similar to how uh, Saddam Hussein, and this is to say nothing of them being brutal. I'm not denying that they're brutal, but they are secular. And we are supporting groups that are not secular, far right-wing jihadist groups that want to set up caliphates. The people that we demonize, yeah, we support them if it suits our interests. Let's just show you how uh, empty and vapid these neocons are, how they don't actually believe any of the garbage they speak. They are entirely doing it for the sake of war. In a June 2017 article entitled Vladimir Putin looked Trump in the eye and lied to him, we negotiate with Russia at our peril. That's the quote for the article name. Bolton called Russian interference in the 2016 United States election, quote, a true act of war, 
unquote. As Trump's national security advisor in July 2018, Bolton referred to the investigation into Russian interference as, quote, the Russian witch hunt, unquote. So again, he thought it was an act of war in 2016. 2018, not so much. I mean, you got to roll back some of your war talk, don't you? When you end up working for the guy that might not want you to, to mention the Russian investigation. Moving on to China. I know this seems like a lot, but you got to keep in mind that's how crazy this guy is. Bolton criticized Washington's one China policy, under which Taiwan, officially known as the Republic of China, is not recognized as an independent nation, with recognition only being given to the People's Republic of China. He also said, there's simply no excuse for the stealing of intellectual property, forced technology transfers, it's sometimes called, unquote. Bolton said the United States needs to counter a Chinese arms buildup in the Pacific, including within the South China Sea, was one of the reasons for their move to withdraw from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia, because China is not a part of the treaty. In a, and this is moving on to Latin America. In a speech as National Security Advisor on November 1st, 2018, Bolton praised Brazil's president-elect J.R. Bolsonaro and Colombia's president Ivan Marquez both right-wing conservatives, calling them, quote, like-minded, quote, unquote, partners in the speech. He also framed Bolsonaro's recent election victory as, quote, positive sign, unquote, for Latin America. He criticized Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua as, quote, trioca of tyranny, unquote. Bolsonaro is a dictator, okay? The only reason he got elected is because Lula da Silva, the popular Bernie Sanders-esque candidate, former president of Brazil, who had been in charge, I think, for over a decade, was illegally imprisoned in an investigation known as the Lava Jato investigation that has since been completely debunked as something that was political from the onset as an attempt to get him out of power to serve deep uh, oligarchic interest within Brazil. Like, they have literal recordings and text messages proving that the Lava Jato... Uh, investigation from its onset was designed to imprison Lula da Silva. He is the world's most prominent political prisoner. Uh, thankfully, Bernie Sanders has called for his release, the only presidential candidate to do so. And here we have John Bolton praising J.R. Bolsonaro, the man who won election only because Lula da Silva was not there to run against him. So, those are some of the best hits of John Bolton and what he contributed to political discussion in this country. He is by far one of the most dangerous human beings on the planet when it comes to war. He attempted to sabotage our negotiations with North Korea. He has attempted to sabotage any... Well, he's one of the architects of attempting war with Venezuela right now. Like, that was one of his big uh, uh, plans going like going forward. Uh, and I'm going to play one last clip here just so you can hear how he thinks about other nations. And this is uh, Jake Tapper on CNN. It looks like March 5th is around the time that this was brought up. South America, you tweeted on Friday about Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro, quote, those who continue to support a dictator that violates human rights and steals from the starving should not be allowed to walk around with impunity, unquote. Just as a matter of course, and this didn't start with the Trump administration, the United States supports any number of dictators who violate human rights, including the leaders of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, 
Should those who support those dictators not be allowed to walk around with impunity? You know, I've, I've put out roughly 150 tweets on Venezuela. This is a new experiment in public diplomacy. Uh, the fact is that we are trying to rally support uh, for the peaceful transition of power from Maduro to Juan Guaido, whom we recognize as president. Uh, and I think uh, since most of my tweets also come out in Spanish because we want to reach the Latin American audience in particular, that a lot of people, especially on the political left, in the hemisphere and around the world, now understand that the failed experiment of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro needs to end. So I'd like to see as broad a coalition as we can put together to replace Maduro, to replace the whole corrupt regime. That's what we're trying to do. Well, certainly Maduro is nobody that I would defend in any way. But well, that's good to hear. But do you, do you not see that uh, the United States support for other brutal dictators around the world undermines the the credibility of the argument you're making? No, I don't think it does. I think it's separate. And I think, look, in this administration, uh, we're not afraid to use the phrase Monroe Doctrine. This, this is a country in our hemisphere. It's been the objective of American presidents going back to Ronald Reagan to have a completely democratic hemisphere. I uh, mentioned back in, uh, at the end of last year that uh, we're looking very much at the troika of tyranny, including Cuba and Nicaragua, as well as Maduro. Part of the problem in Venezuela is the heavy Cuban presence, 20 to 25,000 Cuban security officials by reports that have been in the public. This is the, the sort of thing that, uh, that we find unacceptable, and that's why we're pursuing these policies. So, yeah, that's the kind of man he is. That's who he is. That's what his agenda is. That's how he thinks. Uh, it's fine that we support dictators in other countries. Uh, the What matters is the dictators I don't like, this troika of tyranny. This is not allowed to exist. Even though Cuba has been perfectly peaceable and has invaded no one for 40, 50 years, whereas we're the ones invading everybody in South America every time it's convenient for us. Uh, and... We're sanctioning Venezuela right now. Part of the reason that they're in such desperate poverty is because we created the situation uh, by sanctioning them heavily uh, and creating economic desperation. And then we suddenly decide to stand up as if we're the arbiters of American or of uh, Venezuelan democracy and appoint Juan Guaido as the person in charge. Uh, the reason why that coup has not worked is not because of any part of Maduro's brutality is because nobody supports Juan Guaido. People can not like Maduro and also have no interest in Juan Guaido, somebody who would be appointed purely as an American puppet. So that is who John Bolton is. And this is a celebration. This is good news. You know, Joe Biden failing up on stage. Nothing that the Washington Post says is going to hide that. John Bolton got fired this week. All in all, great week you know, for making the world a little bit less shitty. I mean, again, it's deeply depressing that the Post and the New York Times want to pretend like that's not what was happening. But Joe Biden, I don't think that, again, it can be sustained. I don't think that his complete lack of coherence is not going to make its way under the airwaves. So uh, it's been a long time coming. I don't expect that he'll be holding on to first place for very much longer. I think that they're going to immediately switch over to Elizabeth Warren and phrasing her as the top candidate because they don't want to acknowledge Bernie Sanders is there, uh, which is still progress because at least Biden won't be in the conversation for much longer. And neocon John Bolton won't be in the conversation at all anymore. So hooray, we probably won't be going to war with Iran and Venezuela and North Korea. Good news. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I know this was a long one. I'll try to keep it a little bit more brief next week. And uh, this is Social Bowl Socialism with Joe Loud Guy.
Have a good evening, everybody.